That is Cheers. Uh, from 1985 to 1993, it was one of the top 10 rated shows uh, in America. A couple of those years, it was the number one show in this country. It revolves around a guy named Sam, a former Major League Baseball player turned bartender. And the relationships that develop between Sam and his customers and his staff. Uh, Cheers is the place that you went when you wanted to celebrate an important milestone or if you needed to lament because life wasn't going the way that you had hoped it would go, or if you wanted to find companionship because you were feeling a little lonely. Cheers was the place where, as Jeremy just sang for us, everybody knows your name. You didn't know there was more than one verse to that song, did you? Yeah, it's fascinating. And some of you, you sang the chorus of that song louder than the worship songs that we had, but whatever it takes, whatever it takes to get you going. Uh, Our theme this year at Hope is to know and to be known. To know and to be known. We want to be a church where more than just knowing the names of the people uh, that we worship with, that we serve with, we want to really know people. And of course, a church this size, you're not going to know everyone in that sort of sense, but hopefully there's at least one person or a group of people that you know really well, to know and to be known. One of the things we say around here, if you were to go to our website and read our description of our worship services, we call our worship services come-as-you-are worship services. And that means all kinds of things. We'll dig into it a little bit today. But it doesn't come from any one particular verse in the Bible. Instead, the idea is as you read about who Jesus is and what Jesus does and how Jesus interacts with people, it becomes pretty clear that Jesus would have come-as-you-are worship services. One of the places where we see this idea is in Luke chapter 15. In Luke 15, we're told Jesus is spending a lot of time hanging out with tax collectors and other notorious sinners. And the religious establishment of Jesus' day doesn't quite know what to make of all of this, but they're pretty sure it is not a good thing. And so let's read this verse together. Luke 15, verse 2. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. What are you doing, Jesus? You're supposed to be holy. You're supposed to be a man of God. You're supposed to be claiming to be the son of God. What are you doing welcoming sinners and even eating with them? And remember, in the Middle Eastern culture of Jesus' day, to share a meal with someone was a very powerful symbol. It meant you are in a close relationship with them. What are you doing in a close relationship welcoming sinners, Jesus? I want you to think about friends, family members, co-workers, neighbors that you have who do not go to church. What's, what's their view of church? Do they view church kind of like Cheers, this place where everybody is welcoming and everybody knows your name? Or is church a bunch of people who are so, sort of holier than thou and self-righteous and judgmental and they gather together to talk about how much better we are than everybody else? There's a guy named Brennan Manning. He's an author, but before he was an author, he was a Catholic priest. He's a recovering alcoholic. He died uh, in 2013, but uh, he wrote beautifully about the love of God and the grace of God in in many of his books. I want to read to you a story he tells in a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. Just listen to this story unfold. On a sweltering summer night in New Orleans... Sixteen recovering alcoholics and drug addicts gather for their weekly AA meeting. Although several members attend other meetings during the week, this is their home group. 
They've been meeting on Tuesday nights for several years and know each other well. Some talk to each other daily on the telephone, others socialize outside the meetings. The personal investment in one another's sobriety is sizable. Nobody fools anybody else. Everyone is there because he or she made a slobbering mess of his or her life and is trying to put the pieces back together. Each meeting is marked by levity and seriousness. Some members are wealthy, others middle class or poor. Some smoke, others don't. Most drink coffee. Some have graduate degrees. Others have not finished high school. For one small hour, the high and mighty descend and the lowly rise. The result is fellowship. The meeting opened with the serenity prayer followed by a moment of silence. The prologue to Alcoholics Anonymous was read from the big book by Harry, followed by the 12 steps of the program from Michelle. That night, Jack was the appointed leader. The theme I want to talk about tonight is gratitude, he began. But if anyone wants to talk about something else, let's hear it. Immediately, Phil's hand shot up. As you all know, last week I went up to Pennsylvania to visit family and I missed the meeting. You also know I have been sober for seven years. Last Monday, I got drunk and stayed drunk for five days. The only sound in the room was the drip from the Mr. Coffee in the corner. You all know the buzzword HALT, H-A-L-T, in this program, he continued. Don't let yourself get hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, or you'll be very vulnerable to that first drink. The last three got to me. I unplugged the jug, and Phil's voice choked, and he lowered his head. I glanced around the table, moist eyes, tears of compassion, soft sobbing, the only sound in the room. And then they began to speak. Same thing happened to me, Phil, but I stayed drunk for a year. Thank God you're back. Boy, that took a lot of guts. Relapse spells relief, Phil, said a substance abuse counselor. Let's get together tomorrow and figure out what you needed relief from and why. Another said, I'm so proud of you. I never made even close to seven years. As the meeting ended, Phil stood up. He felt a hand on his shoulder, another on his face, then kisses on his eyes, forehead, neck, and cheek. You old ragamuffin, said Denise, let's go. I'm treating you to a banana split at Tasty Freeze. I don't know what you think when you hear that story, but I think it's beautiful. I think it's a powerful picture of what the church can be, but for some reason when I read a story like that, I think it's a lot easier to imagine that scene unfolding at a recovery group than it would be to imagine it happening at anything connected to church. But Jesus has these dreams for church, what the church can be, what the church can become. And, and part of what prevents us from becoming the church that Jesus wants us to be is we spend a whole lot of time hiding and pretending. I don't know if you noticed or remembered, but in the middle of that story, Brendan Manning's writing about the AA group, and he said, it's a place where nobody fools anybody else. We spend a lot of time trying to fool each other in the church, don't we? We say we're a come-as-you-are church, and that means all sorts of things. Part of what it means is you can wear whatever you want to wear when you come to church. If you've been out working in the garden all day or on the, in the yard or working in the garage on your engine like I do most, of the, most days and getting covered with grease and oil, you don't have to clean up and shower. Just come, come on in. Come as you are. Or if it's a busy weekend for 
parents who have kids in all kinds of activities, and you're like, how are we going to be able to get from everything that we need to get to? And well, just bring your kids in their basketball uniform or their wrestling or cheer or swing choir outfits. Just come as you are. Now, maybe some of you are like me, and you, you love to get dressed up for worship. There's nothing better than putting on a nice, clean sweater vest and showing up to, you know, let everybody see. I, I, I got dressed in the dark this morning. I, I thought I was pulling out a Chiefs sweater vest. It's the cl- How about those Cyclones, huh? That's pretty fun. Yeah. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Anyway, maybe the sort of attitude around church when you were growing up was, we get dressed up, we put on our Sunday best, it's a way of giving God our best, it's a way of being respectful, honoring God, that's great, that's awesome. But that's not the whole truth, is it? For a lot of us, the part of the reason that we like to get dressed up for church is because church is more about to see and to be seen than it is about to know and to be known. And so when I say we get dressed up for church, I'm talking about a whole lot more than just our wardrobe. Jesus spends a lot of time in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, taking on the religious establishment of his day. And in Matthew chapter 23, he goes to town on the religious leaders. Here's part of what he says. Everything they do is for show. When they are serving, when they are giving, when they are praying, when they are worshiping, they're spiritual show-offs. If the religious leaders of Jesus' day were to come to Hope on a weekend like this, on Super Bowl weekend, they would pull up to the front entrance about two minutes before service started, pulling a huge trailer full of food, and they'd make a whole bunch of noise and commotion to make sure everybody sees how much food they're bringing into the food drive. Look at me, look at me, it's all about me. And Jesus says, that's not good. That's not okay. Everything they do is for show. Later on in Matthew 23, he calls the religious leadership whitewashed tombs. Trying so hard to make sure you look good on the outside when on the inside it's nothing but death and decay. Jesus has dreams for who the church can be, what the church can be. Jesus wants us to be a church where it really is come as you are. And of course, part of what that means is there's no dress code, but even more importantly than that, it means we can become a place where we no longer have to hide, we no longer have to pretend, nobody has to fool anybody anymore. Uh, Next weekend, my wife Wendy and I are going up to Okaboji, Ingham Okaboji Lutheran Bible Camp, and we get to teach together a marriage retreat. And part of what we're going to be talking about comes from a book called The New Rules of Marriage. The author is a guy named Terrence Reel, and he's a marriage and family uh, counselor. He actually trains a lot of counselors to be marriage and family uh, counselors and therapists. And so uh, fascinating stuff that he has in this book. It's been really uh, good for my wife and me to be thinking about this and talking about this the last year or so. I want to talk to you about something that he has in this book. He calls it the relationship grid. The relationship grid. And it doesn't matter if you are married or not. It doesn't matter if you're a church person or not, if you believe the Bible or not. I'm telling you, this thing is going to be good for you, whatever relationships you might be, parents and children, uh, friendships, uh, bosses and coworkers, whatever. So he says we've got a vertical axis on the relationship grid. At the top, we got grandiose. On the bottom, we have shame. Uh, the Pharisees would be in a position of grandiosity. They viewed themselves as superior in every way. 
intellectually, morally, theologically superior. When you're in this place of grandiosity, you put yourself in a one-up position compared to everyone else. And the primary emotion kind of driving this is the emotion of contempt. When you're grandiose, it causes you to look out or look down on others with contempt. I'm so much better than the rest of you. Shame at the bottom of the vertical axis you might think of it as the opposite. It's kind of coming from a place of inferiority, that sort of thing. But I'd prefer that you think of it as two sides of the same coin. Uh, it's really the same emotion that drives both grandiosity and shame. It's the same emotion. It's contempt. Shame is contempt not pointed out at others, but pointed in at ourselves. Shame is when we kind of put ourselves in a one-down position compared to everyone else. Grandiose is one up, shame is one down. That's the vertical axis of the relationship grid. Horizontally, we've got walled off on one side, boundaryless on the other side. Someone who is walled off, you might call them love avoidant. Someone who is boundaryless, you might say they are love dependent. Of course, the, the goal would be healthy boundaries, where I respect your physical and psychological boundaries and you respect mine, but our tendency is to drift to one of the extremes. So someone who is walled off, they might become that way for all kinds of reasons. They set really firm boundaries. They almost build walls, relational walls around themselves. Maybe it's because they got hurt one too many times and they made a vow. I'm never going to get close enough to someone again for them to hurt me. I'm never going to allow myself to get vulnerable enough that I might get hurt in a relationship. That's a walled-off person. A boundaryless person is someone who really doesn't have any walls. And as a result, they kind of allow themselves to be mistreated. They put themselves in a, a place where they get hurt in relationships time and time and time again. So what we end up here with is with four quadrants. We've got a walled-off, one-up quadrant, a boundaryless and one-up quadrant, a walled-off and one-down quadrant, and a boundaryless and one-down quadrant. And the challenge for you is to kind of consider and think about where might you place yourself on this grid. But because it's difficult to talk about ourselves, let's talk about the Pharisees a little bit. Uh, the Pharisees, they would be walled-off and one-up viewing themselves as superior and viewing others with a little bit of contempt. Relationally, they become kind of indifferent. I don't care what you think about us. We're the ones who know. We're the ones in power. Maybe passive-aggressive in their approach. Definitely a you're-not-worthy stance as they look at everybody else, compare themselves to the rest of the nation of Israel. But you see this not just in the Pharisees. You see it in people in our day as well. Uh, that would be a walled-off one-up. It actually kind of causes them intentionally to isolate themselves relationally because nobody else is good enough to be in relationship with them. Someone who is boundaryless in one-up, a big part of what that means is they don't respect anybody else's boundaries. And so in their anger or with their control issues, they're constantly overstepping someone's boundaries in unhealthy and hurtful ways. Uh, a walled-off, one-down kind of person would be, they have these big walls up, they don't want to get hurt, but it causes them to just withdraw more and more all the time. It leads them to a lonely place, sometimes a very depressed place. Someone who is boundaryless and one-down. Maybe you might think of them as kind of emotionally needy. 
Uh, maybe it's someone who apologizes way too often. They're so worried that they've done something or said something to offend you or to hurt you, that, then that's going to mean no relationship. There's almost a sense of desperation when it comes to relationship, and that can lead them to be emotionally manipulative. So again, you take a look at these four quadrants, where might you put yourself? Walled off and one up, boundaryless and one up, walled off and one down, or boundaryless and one down. And if you're wondering, if you're not really sure, and you are married, ask your spouse. They can probably tell you in about 10 seconds where you are. I'll, I'll just talk about myself for a little bit. Because remember, the goal is to know and to be known. As painful and as difficult and as hard as it might be to put ourselves in one of these quadrants, if we really are serious about to know and to be known, this can be a very helpful tool for us. I'm a Pharisee. I'm a walled-off, one-up kind of guy when it comes to relationships. And you can see this in all sorts of ways. Um, when I'm driving, when I'm in a parking lot and somebody takes up two spaces or they're a little too close to the line, I view that person with contempt. Or if we're driving on the road and, they're, and I'm in a hurry and they're going too slow, or if I'm, you know, got a little time to spare and so I'm just kind of coasting along and they're zooming by, I just... I mean, what kind of idiot driver are they? Nice turn signal, buddy. Anyway, when it comes to the, so try not to, that's why I hang my name tag off of the, so to remind myself, people can see your name. Anyway, um, <laughs> at home, at home, it kind of plays itself out this way. When Wendy and I are having good and important conversations, a couple of lines that I hear from her repeatedly, she will say things like, Scott, it feels like you're trying to teach me a lesson. I don't, I don't need you to teach me a lesson. Or, Scott, it feels like you're trying to be my pastor. You're not my pastor. Pastor Josh is my pastor. I don't need a pastor. <laughs> and it kind of plays itself. What is it for you? What is it for you? And here's, here's what I found fascinating about this. He says part of what the relationship grid does is it shows us how to be truly human. How, it's all about how do we become truly human. Human. And I want us to read together part of what he writes about this. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. You cannot love yourself or anyone else from either the one up or the one down position. Come into the healthy position of same as, neither above nor below. Great commandment, according to Jesus. Love God with everything we have. Love our neighbor as ourself. He doesn't quote a single Bible verse in the entire book. But if you know your Bible at all, you, you see Scripture just jumping off the page everywhere. You cannot love yourself or anyone else. You cannot follow the great commandment from either a one-up or one-down position. The goal to be truly human is to come to a place of same as. And I want to give you a picture of this by showing you a, a clip from a movie called Notting Hill. Notting Hill. I played this four or five years ago for us, but I think it's a perfect picture of what we're talking about. Uh, Julia Roberts plays a world-famous movie star, and through a series of, her name's Anna Scott, through a series of circumstances, she starts to date this guy named William. He's played by Hugh Grant. He's kind of a nondescript bookstore owner in uh, London. And the first kind of date they have is they go to William's sister's birthday party. Her name is Honey. Some of their friends have gathered together. And as you watch this scene, pay attention to this one up or one down or same as idea. Take a look. Can't love anyone from either one up or one down position. The goal 
to be truly human is to move to a place of same as. That's where we can really love in healthy ways. And when you stop and think about it, it's exactly what Jesus does for us, isn't it? Paul writes in Philippians 2, Jesus did not consider equality with God as something to grasp or something to cling to, but Jesus, who if anyone is one up or 1,000 or 1 million up, it'd be Jesus. But Paul says Jesus lowered himself. He humbled himself. Why? To become one of us. Same as. Out of love for us and in order to love us, he becomes same as. And I don't know why, but it It feels like it's easier to be same as when you're kind of sitting around a table like that or when you are maybe at a recovery group meeting. But when we talk about trying to become same as in the church, it's really difficult. And part of the reason is or has to do with confession. When when you get to a place like that, for whatever reason, they were able to stop hiding and be open and honest and confess some of their realities. Same thing at an AA meeting, but when we come to church, it's a lot easier to pretend. And confession kind of helps put us into that place of same as. We've been looking at this book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote about the importance and the power of Christian community. In the very last chapter of that book, he writes about confession and the role that confession plays in terms of creating healthy community. Bonhoeffer says this, sin wants to be alone with people. It takes them away from community. Sin wants to remain unknown, hidden. Let's just keep pretending. But the writers of Scripture over and over again talk about the importance of actually confessing our sin. There's something good and powerful that happens when we do that. So in the time that we have left, we're going to put a microphone up here, and one by one we'll just ask you to come on up and confess. No, we won't do that. Actually, that's not what confession is about anyway. Jesus says, wherever two or more are gathered together in my name, there I am with you. So you don't have to confess your sin to the whole congregation, but there needs to be someone. There needs to be someone. Let's look at some Bible verses that talk about this. First John chapter 1 verse 9, read this out loud with me. If we confess our sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. And we Protestants love this verse. Isn't this awesome? We don't have to go to a priest. We don't have to go to a confession booth. We can just go straight to God. We can take our sin directly to God, and God hears and God forgives. And that is, that's great theology. But Martin Luther, did you know this? Martin Luther, the great reformer, he wanted to keep confession as a sacrament in the Lutheran church. He couldn't find enough theological backing to actually be able to do it. But Luther's fear was, if we we no longer make it a requirement that you have to confess your sin face-to-face to to another real live human being, his fear was we would just kind of start pretending with confession. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer picks up on this idea, and he wonders, why is it more difficult for us to confess our sin to another sinful human being than it is for us to really confess our sin to a just and righteous God. Here's part of the conclusion that Bonhoeffer comes to. He says, we are living from self-forgiveness and not from the real forgiveness of our sins. As we more and more just kind of practice forgiving our sin directly to God, we pretend with it. And we end up confessing our sin only to ourselves. We end up 
giving ourselves forgiveness, self-forgiveness. And then we wonder, why do we keep on repeating the same sin over and over and over again? Why do we doubt? Why do we wonder, am I really forgiven? He says it's because it's self-forgiveness, and there's no power in self-forgiveness. Another verse, James 5.16, let's read this out loud together. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Theologically, we can go straight to God. But in practicality, in reality, there's something really powerful and transformational that happens when we have a James 5.16 friend. That scene from that book uh, that Brendan Manning wrote about the AA meeting and Phil's relapse and his confession and the way that people come around him with love and with acceptance, but also with, hey, let's figure out what's going on so that we can do better. That's a powerful picture of how confession is supposed to work. Do you have a James 5.16 friend, someone who will pray with you and cry with you and encourage and challenge you to get better? Do you have a James 5.16 friend and the truth is you've been lying to them? It's easy to do. It's easy to continue to hide and to pretend, even when you're purposefully getting together to try to hold each other accountable. Maybe this is why Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. We are blessed when we come to realize the depths of our spiritual poverty. Because that's when we realize how desperately we are in need of the riches of God's grace, God's mercy, God's forgiveness. We're blessed when we stop hiding, take off our masks, stop pretending. We're blessed when we come to this place of same as. When we realize we really are all the same, we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all are in need of a Savior. We all are incapable of saving ourselves. So I want to show you another clip from another movie. This is a movie called Flight. Denzel Washington plays an airline pilot who is also someone who battles addiction. And he crashes a plane, and there's casualties, and there's a big investigation. And so the title, Flight, is not just because he flies airplanes. It's also about the way he's been living his life, how he's been hiding and pretending and running away from real important things in his life so that he doesn't grow and doesn't change, doesn't mature. He ends up in prison because of what he did, flying an airplane while intoxicated. I want you to watch this. It's a um, confession as he's talking to some of the inmates, but it ends with him having a conversation with his son who comes to visit him. Take a look. We're going to take some time to confess together, and I'll kind of lead us into a corporate prayer of confession. And I don't know exactly what it means, but let's try not to pretend our way through this one. Let's try in our heart of hearts to be as honest with God as we can possibly be as we ask for forgiveness, as we confess and ask for forgiveness. So I'll start out, and then when it says people on the screen, we'll all pray this together. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Let's pray together. Most holy and merciful Father, we confess to you and to one another that we have sinned against you by what we have done 
and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not fully loved our neighbors as ourselves. We have not always had in us the mind of Christ. You alone know how often we have grieved you by wasting your gifts, by wandering from your ways. Forgive us, we pray you, most merciful Father, and free us from our sin. Renew us the grace and strength of your Holy Spirit for the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Amen.